Again, we say welcome to our assembly, and uh, for a few moments now, we God's blessed us with the opportunity to open God's Word, and we ask you to, if you have a Bible with you, maybe there's one in the pew in front of you, we invite you to open that now, we're going to study from the Scriptures. We're going to return this morning to a um, passage that we began uh, studying about last week, as part of our yearly theme, and our monthly theme from Philippians, Philippians chapter 4, verse 6. The Apostle says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your request be made known to God. So we're going to take a look at prayer this morning and talk a little bit about what the Bible says about not only the obligation to pray, but uh, more specifically uh, what prayer is and how we are to relate to God. Uh, What's clear from this passage and others is that when you bow your knee to pray, uh, when you go in your closet, when you pray before a meal, uh, you're doing what God wants you to do. Uh, the command to pray uh, is directly found in Scripture. Uh, and Paul tells us to pray without ceasing in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Well, we also recognize in looking at all the Scriptures, even from the Old Testament on, is that God's covenant people are always praying people. But it wasn't just God speaking to them. They were talking to God in, in some of the most difficult and concerning moments of their life. God's people were praying in times of great celebration and great joy. Uh, there's prayer. And so we think about God's people today being a people of prayer. It's certainly, uh, I think, incumbent upon us to look and see what the Bible teaches and what God expects of us. But if we're going to be people of prayer, what does that require? What's involved in that? Um, do we fulfill this command when we come together and pray publicly? Is what we've done this morning in offering prayers while someone leads our minds, is that enough? Is praying a matter of saying certain words? If we learn prayers or we memorize words, is that enough? Is that what God is talking about when he tells us that we need to pray? When I think about this subject personally, and I ask myself, do I pray enough? It's very difficult for me to give an affirmative answer to that. And I don't know if you see that in the same way, but whenever I think about prayer in terms of my personal lives, I always come away with the conclusion I don't pray enough, that this is something that I need to do more. And there's a reason, I think, why that's so. We'll talk a little bit about this as we study through this this morning. But certainly, the idea that prayer is to be a comprehensive characteristic of a person's life, that's something that is to always be there, leaves us with an enormous challenge as we live our daily lives, and that is whether or not we're praying enough and whether or not what we're praying about is really the important elements of our life. A survey a few years ago asked 40,000 members of the Church of Christ, do you sincerely pray at least once a day? And fewer than 10% answered yes. Uh, and I think about that, not a very good rendering of the aspect of whether or not we are involved in prayer. But what we talked about last week, we'll begin there this morning, in terms of what, what prayer is and what prayer is not. Prayer is not liturgy in the Bible. It's not simply filling a time slot in a worship period with, something, with, with the aspect of talking to God or saying certain words. It is not a ritual that is to be performed. Prayer is not liturgy, it's communication. It is talking to God. It is the great privilege that I have to speak to God and to make my heart known to God. But it's more than just communication. Prayer in the Bible is meaningful communication that's built upon a relationship. That God gives me the opportunity to talk to Him because I am His child and He is my Father. Because I have come into relationship with Him. And because, most importantly, because I am dependent upon Him. So prayer in the Bible, as we talked about last week, grows out of this aspect of of absolute dependency upon God. 
when we think that we are taking care of ourselves, when we lose track of the great mercies and blessings of God, when we put our attention on what we have accomplished, then prayer will fall off the board. It will not only will we pray less, but when we do pray, it will mean very little. And so we speak to God continually to bolster, to develop, and certainly I think uh, to display this aspect of our dependency upon God. We'll talk a little bit about this as it comes out in the elements of prayer, but that's where I want to sort of begin this morning, is what are the elements of prayer? As the Bible describes them, uh, it's described prayer by the use of different terminology, we're able to give a more comprehensive picture of what constitutes prayer as it's described in the Scriptures, and that helps us to be able to see whether or not we're doing what God would have us to do, and to also to recognize and maybe that prayer can be more meaningful to us than it is now. The words of Philippians chapter 4, verse 6 help us here uh, because Paul, Paul talks about, uh, makes, the, makes the nut bots, the, 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 not this but this statement that we should not worry but we should pray and he uses a couple of different words here that tell us how that's to be done. He says, let your requests be, na- be made known to God and then he tells us how. He says, by prayer, and there's that general word in the scriptures, the most general and common word for, for, for prayer, uh, is prosuke, which means the aspect of many times worship, but it simply means in, in the aspect of an oratory to God. So this particular word that we translate most often and most always as prayer in the Bible means that I worship God by speaking to Him, that I come to Him and I exercise my voice, that I tell God what's going on in my life, that I speak to Him about the things that uh, are, are concerned to me. And as we mentioned, prayer runs throughout the Bible. It runs throughout the, uh, the relationship that God has with His people. And then Paul also says that it's by prayer and supplication that we make our requests known to God. The original word for supplication here is the word diasos, which means uh, to beg or to plead. What's interesting is that prayer and supplication in biblical language are almost synonymous. In fact, they're used together many, many times. That by prayer and supplication, these things are done. Or that someone supplicates God by praying to God. Or he prays to God through a supplication. It simply means that here's a need that I have. And that's what the vine tells us about it. It means to beg or plead, especially in regards to a present need. Here's something that I need. What shall I do about it? I will ask God about it. I will supplicate Him or ask Him to satisfy the needs that I have. I will make a petition to Him. And so supplication not only means prayer, but it means specifically prayer that implies a need and certainly implies the aspect of dependency. If I need something and I'm going to ask you, I first have to determine whether or not you can help me. And if, and if you come to me and you want me to figure out you know, uh, a new math, <laughs> or you want me to work some problem for you from your tr- trigonometry class, that's probably not going to help you much. You can ask, but I don't know how. So the aspect of asking, supplicating to God implies the idea that you believe that you have confidence that God can do something about it, that you're dependent upon Him. When we pray, we should not be afraid to ask for God's help. We should in no way feel, you see, hesitant or reluctant to speak to God, even about the most seemingly insignificant things of our life, for two reasons. One is that God is able to help, and this is faith in His power. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. 
that He's able to do exceedingly abundantly all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. So we ask or think. We petition God. What do we believe? That He can do something about it. That He has the power to do about it. But not only does He have the resources to meet our needs, but He's also willing to help. Someone might have the resources to do something about it, but they don't want to do anything about it. They're not going to do anything about it. And so it doesn't really do any good to, to ask them. Or we might be reluctant to ask them because we realize they're reluctant to help. God's not a stingy tyrant. He's not an uncaring father. He's not someone who distances himself and doesn't want to be involved in what our problems are. In Luke chapter 11, Jesus says, So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks it will be opened. Then he goes from that passage, those very prominent and powerful promises. He goes from that passage and talks about the father-son relationship. That if a, father, if a son asks a father for a piece of bread, he doesn't, the father doesn't turn around and give him a stone. Or scorpion gives him what's best for him because he cares, he wants to help. So let me suggest this to you from the standpoint of just the first two words we look at that are described as prayer in the Bible that God expects you to ask. He wants you to petition to Him so you might receive the things that you need. And ask James chapter 4, verse 2. James says, You lust and do not have, you murder and covet and cannot obtain, you fight in war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. We go all this trouble to to gain things. We beat each other up and take things away from one another and covet the things that other people have and we're constantly in this aspect of striving for the things that we want in life and James says that's not the avenue. The things that you need are available if you ask God. Now certainly James isn't preaching a gospel or teaching a message here that God wants us to have everything that we want and therefore if we just become Christians God will make everything appear in our life. The elements of the prosperity gospels of popular today are not found in the scriptures and that's not what James is saying here. But what he is telling us is that we do not have because we do not ask. Our reluctance to come to God is not only a clear evidence that we don't have faith in God, but it's foolishness. Because we certainly can have what is best for us by asking a father who cares. But then he says we also come and make our requests to God by thanksgiving or actually he says with thanksgiving. And the word here is Eucharistia, I think as I pronounce it in the original language, the word from which we get the English word Eucharist. But the word literally means the aspect here of gratitude. It's language that expresses gratitude or thankfulness, particularly to God, and in the, terms, the use of this term, it is associated with the aspect of active worship, such as the word uh, for prayer that we looked at earlier. What Vines tells us is it's the grateful acknowledgement of past mercies. What's that mean? It means God's been good to us. And so what's the proper response to that? It's to acknowledge that God's been good to us. That he's been merciful to us. The idea of mercy means you got more than you deserved. Not that you just got what's coming to you, but you got better than what's coming to you. And so what do you do to, about that? How do you respond to that? You thank Him. So prayer is the natural response of the grateful heart. The person that's grateful inside will be on his knees to God, always providing thanksgiving to God. When I think about this aspect of the comprehensive element of thanksgiving, I always, I almost always think about Sister Stell, our dear sister that's, that's gone from us now, who we love so very much. Di and I had the privilege of bringing her to services on many occasions, picking her up. She lived almost across the street, you know, less than a mile away, you know. But every time we'd pick her up, from the very time she opened the door to get in, she was saying thank you. 
Thank you so much for pricking me up. I'm so grateful. You're such good people. And then when you got out of the car, she's thanking you again. Probably the whole way over, she's telling you how grateful she was that you were able to drive her that mile of services. <laughs> and of course, you spent your time with Sister Estelle saying, well, that's okay. It's no big deal. That's okay. And I think about that from the standpoint of the Christian attitude towards God. When the Christian looks around and sees everything that he has, when he sees all those gifts, what's the natural thing? But to say thank you, not just once, but over and over and over again to live our lives in an atmosphere of thanksgiving. And that's what, you see, Paul's saying is the environment of prayer. That is to pray consistently and constantly with thanksgiving. And so thanksgiving in the Bible is often associated with prayer. The comprehensive element of thanksgiving is found in prayer. Uh, In Ephesians chapter 5 verse 20, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. In Colossians 4 verse 2, Paul says, continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. In that passage we mentioned before, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, pray without ceasing in everything, give thanks. So it's the seeming law that Paul's saying, you should pray. Why? Because there's always something to be thankful for. It's not that I don't have anything to say to God. Even if I had all my needs met and there were no problems going on, there's always something to say to God in the context of saying thank you. Now what's that mean in our life? I believe it means in a very big way that as Christians we're content with the answers that God gives when we pray. It's difficult to continue in the avenue of prayer if we're not satisfied with the answers that we receive. If we're not content or satisfied with God, our prayers will become meaningless rituals. We'll just say the word because God wants us to pray. And our prayers may very well turn into simply selfish demands that we don't really believe are going to be met anyway. So in order to foster prayer, we're going to talk about the aspect of what it means to pray continuously. In order to make our prayers more consistent and more meaningful, one of the first steps, I think, that's implied here is that we really have to take an inventory to seriously inventory our lives, our blessings, and look around and see what's going on that's good and focus on what's good in our life so that we have an opportunity to speak to God about those things and thereby to pray properly by praying in the environment of thanksgiving. But there are other elements of prayer here that are not contained in, that Paul doesn't mention here in Philippians chapter 4 that are contained in other passages of Scripture. And again, as we look at prayer, we recognize that this helps us to understand what prayer, what prayer is all about. One of the elements of prayer is praise. You know, look at the Old Testament and you, and you look at all the times in which God's people, patriarchs and others, Moses and those who lived under the law of Moses, uh, approach God in prayer. That it's almost always associated with the aspect of, one, the blessings of God, and the other aspect of sacrifice. That prayer is an assumed activity. It's almost taken for granted that God's people would pray regularly to Him, but it's linked with the aspect of bringing offerings or sacrifices to God. Isaiah calls temples, the temple of God the house of prayer in Isaiah chapter 56. Well, the temples where the sacrifices took place is where God met with man and man met with God. And Isaiah calls it a house of prayer because prayer accompanied all the offerings. It wasn't just bringing something to God, but it was saying something to God about what was happening. And David viewed his prayers as an offering to God. In the 141st Psalm, O Lord, I call upon you, hasten to me, give ear to my voice when I call to you. May my prayer be counted as incense before you, the lifting up my hands as the evening offering. So David says, when I'm praying to you, I'm offering incense to you. And of course, that was a very powerful image of the aspect of the prayers of the saints even in the book of Revelation. 
The Jews had the regular times of prayer. The third, uh, with the third, the morning sacrifice, the sixth and the ninth hours, the evening sacrifices, and all of those times they would pray before God. One place that becomes evident is in the book of Daniel, in Daniel chapter 9. And there's, there's, uh, there's several lessons on prayer in Daniel chapter 9. When Daniel prays before God, before seeing the great visions that God opened up before him. That Daniel got in trouble, you remember, in the book of Daniel, because he prayed so much. When they were looking for something that they could use against Daniel, all his enemies could see was his time in which he, the things that he did towards his God. What was he devoted to? What characterized his life? Where can we find something to define this man to bring against him? And what they saw was, all he did was worship his God. That's what he did all the time. And that was evident in the fact that three times a day he went before his open window and prayed before God. So they said, well, let's make a law that says it's illegal to pray. And so he got in trouble because he was committed to this aspect of regular prayer. In the aspect of praying, then, Daniel was offering worship. The prayers of the New Testament are also filled with words of praise to God. In the sense that those who were speaking were speaking about God. In Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 14, For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven on earth is named. In verse 20 and 21 he goes on to say, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. In verse 21, To him be the glory in the church by Jesus Christ to all generations forever and ever. And you read the prayers of individuals such as Moses' prayers. And you see that they're filled with this aspect of praise where in the context of asking God, petitioning God, there, is the con- there are the words of great adoration and honor to be brought before God. You know, I've heard some Christians complain about folks that, well, he just preaches a sermon when he prays. And I wonder if they're complaining about how long he prays or they're complaining about the content of the prayer. We might, we might sometimes be sort of set back by how long a person is able to pray before God, and sometimes that maybe is because they're more familiar with God than we are. But certainly we can't dismiss a prayer because in the words of the prayer, the person is saying something good about God. That's what prayer is for, is to praise God, at least one of the elements of prayer. I think about David's prayer in First Chronicles chapter 29 dedication of the temple. Therefore David blessed the Lord before all the assembly. This is verse 10. Bless the Lord before all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, Lord God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is greatness, the power and the glory, the victory and the majesty for all that's in heaven and earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you reign over all. In your hand is power and might. In your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. Now therefore, my God, We thank you and praise your glorious name. That's a prayer. You ever prayed that one? You see, David couldn't get enough of saying good things about God. And when he began to talk to God about the things of his own life, he was first overwhelmed with who God was. Not who he was, but with who God was. Consider Mary's prayer in Luke chapter 1 or Hannah's prayer in 1 Samuel chapter 2. And you recognize that prayer in that context was filled with praise and adoration for God and the words that were there. Another element of prayer is the aspect of confession, specifically confession of sin. And this is the other side of praise. The praise contained in prayer was to talk about how great God was and how he was transcendent and above all. But included in those prayers where God would be prayed was also a clear recognition of how little I am and my willingness to confess before God that I am a sinner. How do you tell a humble person from an arrogant person? 
Well, sometimes that's not too hard to do, but Jesus would have us go to the temple and watch him pray. In Luke chapter 18, the publican's willingness to confess his sinfulness before God and the Pharisee's assumption that he didn't need anything from God. The tax collector standing afar off would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven but beat his breast saying, God be merciful to be a sinner. Now certainly what's involved here, I think, is that prayer, a person's prayer, was a litmus test to the aspect of humility particularly in the context of his willingness to confess before God who he really was. And so we often say to God, forgive us of our sins, confessing that we are sinners. Proverbs 28, chapter verse 13, he who covers his sin will not prosper, who confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. So there is certainly this aspect of confessing sin being practically utilitarian, profitable to us that if we confess our sins before God then we have hope of mercy but sometimes I think this is a part of the element of prayer that is easily simply passed over or it is it's made something that really doesn't have a lot of personal application to us and by this I mean that we don't mention very many specific sins in our prayer now, certainly there's some limitations in terms of public prayer, in terms of one person leading a group, in terms of how specific he would be in, in, in confessing sin. But you think about this aspect of confession as it relates to your personal prayers. Is it enough to just say, Lord, I'm a sinner, forgive me? Or does God want in the aspect of prayer and communication for him for us to come face to face with the things that we've done in our life and to certainly convey them to him? In Daniel, the ninth chapter, I refer to that again in verses 5 through 11 is the great prayer of Daniel. And in that, he expresses his contriteness. We'll not take time to read that, but read that over and recognize that David just go, Daniel just goes on and on. It's almost like we want to say, Daniel, Daniel, hold on, don't, don't, quit. We get it. He says that he is a sinner. He says he's committed iniquity, wickedness, rebellion. He's departed from the precepts. He has shame. He's unfaithful to God. He says all of that about himself and all about that about the people. Israel. In verse 10 he says we have not obeyed. Daniel seemingly wanted to confess every form of sin leaving nothing out. He wanted to include in that high-handed sins, unwitting sins, sins of omission, sins of commission. Pulpit commentary says every form of sin that Daniel could find in his consciousness or in his memory was confessed and confessed with genuine sorrow. And again I look at that and say, David you don't pray prayers like that. That's not what you say to God. And yet, that's what Daniel said. Because I expect most of us need to be more earnest, more specific, and more humble, less ritualistic in expressing before God our sorrow and our contriteness for our sins. Maybe our, our prayers do lack the depth they ought to have in terms of being meaningful to us because they are not the fullest expression of our hearts. And then, lastly, is this aspect of intercession. 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 1, Paul says, Therefore I exhort first of all that supplications, prayers, and intercessions, and the giving of thanks be made of all men. So he includes some of these words that we've already looked at, the aspect of supplication and prayers and the giving of thanks. But he includes in this intercessions. The word intercession in the Greek language means literally to meet or come together for a purpose. It's to motion someone over. And so the idea here is that Someone is to intervene in behalf of another. And God invites us to come together with Him, you see, to intercede in another's behalf. 
And it's almost like the word in its original, indica- original context is the idea, original meaning is the idea that God invites us to speak to Him not just about our problems, but about somebody else's problems as well. But who would be so bold to speak to God about somebody else? And yet the aspect of intercession includes that. You think about Jesus on behalf of Peter in Luke chapter 22. Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat, but I prayed for you that your faith should not fail. Jesus interceded for Peter. Now, he had some, you see, information about Peter that Peter didn't have about himself. Jesus was privy to what was going on in the spiritual realm and the danger that Peter was in. But it should not, we, should, we should not lose sight of the fact that Jesus interceded in Peter's behalf through the element of prayer. Could Jesus have done anything other than just pray about Peter? What else could Jesus have done for Peter in his behalf? Well, I don't know that we necessarily might come to a clear answer about that. But what I think is powerful to me is that in terms of Peter's life and what was going to happen to Peter, Jesus praying to the Father and speaking to the Father about Peter was enough. It was enough. Jesus certainly recognized that talking to God about Peter was going to provide for him the strength that he needed in the time of trial. Jesus knew that Peter needed God's help and he knew God that, would, that God would give it. Now that's an element that I need to look around and second. I see people struggling with problems, physical problems, spiritual problems, emotional problems. Who can help them? Who should pray about those things? Well, certainly the person who's going through the struggle should pray, but the idea of intercession is a powerful element that all of us have to work in behalf of one another. So James chapter 5, verse 16, confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effect of fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Now when he's talking about that fervent, effectual prayer availing much, what's it availing much towards? In the context, what James is saying is that if I pray... That what will be done will be done for someone else because that's who I'm praying for. God will not only help me, but He'll help that other person. Now how far is this intercession thing supposed to go? How far does God want me to take it that I would pray for someone else? Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, Love your enemies and bless those who curse you and do good to those who hate you and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. You want things to change the life of those bad people out there who are doing bad things? Pray for them. That's what Jesus says, is to pray for them. And that's intercession, that's the power of intercessory prayer, I think, in a a, a way many times that we overlook and fail to recognize the power of it. I'm convinced that this is where prayerlessness is definitely an indication of the lack of spirituality. When I fail to extend it beyond the sphere of my own life or those of my own family or those I'm close with, and I don't extend it to the aspect of the spiritual purposes of God. Peter said, Jesus is not, God is not willing that any should perish. So the prayer, the intercessory prayer, is it a powerful element in the work of the salvation that God would have for all men? You know, Paul asked Christians to pray for him. Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 1. Pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as has happened among you. Pray for us. That the word of God may speed ahead and be honored. And what's Paul saying here? Well, when Paul came to Thessalonica and preached the gospel there for the first time, he, he found an audience that was receptive. It says they accepted the Word of God as it truly was, the, the Word of God, and they were obedient to it. So Paul's writing back to a group of Christians 
that had responded to the Word of God when it was first preached. And what's he say to them? He says, I'm going other places, so you pray that when I go someplace else, it'll do the same thing there as it did here. Just as it was among you. Just as it happened among you. That means praying for the salvation of other people is directly linked to understanding the value of my own salvation. Someone taught me the gospel. Someone brought the truth to me. Someone brought me up to the point where I would understand and the Word of God became effective in my life. And look where I am now. What should I do about that? Paul says you pray that that Word of God will go somewhere else and it will be honored there as well. Because you see, prayer is a powerful force in the saving purposes of God. The spiritual work of God. And so the advance of God's saving power through the gospel of Jesus Christ happens in response to prayer. And it's not one person praying, or it's not the prayer of some important person in the eyes of men. It's the continual, constant prayer of Christians all over the globe, from all different places, that contribute to the progress of the gospel. So why don't we see more people saved? You know, there's a lot of answers I suppose we could give to that question. But I can't escape the one that comes to me now, and that is because you and I are not praying about it enough. We're not praying about it enough. Because prayer is an element of that. Tonight we're going to explore a little bit about the aspect of the place of intercessory prayer and the spiritual work that God has given us and talk a little bit about, uh, well, about what it means to pray without ceasing. The command that we pray and not give up on prayer. Because if prayer is part of, an integral part of the spiritual work of God among his people, and you and I are involved in that work, then certainly we can never come to the point where we don't think prayer ought to be done, or that we don't think it'll work, or that it maybe even as the world says about it today, that's just superstitious and fairy tales. Prayer is much more than that. It is the avenue through which you and I not only can communicate to God, but it's the avenue, at least one of the avenues through which God's work can be done through us, is that we pray. And we pray about those things that God is doing. Paul said on at least two occasions that we should pray in the Spirit. There may be a whole other lesson on the aspect of understanding what that means, the idea of praying in the Spirit. Certainly there was even the idea of spiritual gifts involved, miraculous gifts, the aspect of teaching the Word of God and praying in the first century. You may get that from 1 Corinthians chapter 12. But I'm more convinced that the aspect of praying in the Spirit, that praying according to the purposes of the Spirit, just like being filled with the Spirit meant to be influenced by the Spirit of God, to do the things that God would have me to do, to be moved by what the Spirit wants to accomplish. So to pray in the Spirit means to pray about those things that the Spirit wants to accomplish. Now God wants me to have healthy bones and strong body. He wants me to be able to survive my surgery and to do things that, to be able to live longer for my grandchildren. But the purposes of the Spirit go deeper than that in my life and in yours. The purposes of the Spirit have to do with the forgiveness of sins, the saving of the lost, the turning of people's hearts back to God, the changing of societies, the changing of an individual heart, and bearing fruits in people's lives. And those are the things that I need to be praying about. That's what it would mean to pray in the Spirit of God. So let's pray without ceasing. Thank you for your attention this morning. Uh, If you're not a child of God, I want to encourage you to be obedient to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And let me point to the re- one of the reasons right from the context of what, we're t- what we've talked about today in the idea of prayer. And that is that those who can pray to God are His children. It's a spiritual blessing to come to God in His family and speak to Him. A blessing that 
certainly comes to those who are in the family of God. If you're outside of Christ, if you're outside the family of God, there are no promises that I can give you that God listens to your prayers or that God will use you in the spiritual work that He's doing if you're not a part of the body of Christ, cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. The blessings come through what God has done for you. And think about the aspect of the ability for you to be effective in prayer when you can give thanks, not just for the physical things God has done for you, but for the fact that He saved you from your sins and you are His child. You must believe in Jesus Christ, repent of your sins, and confess Jesus as the Son of God and be baptized in water for the forgiveness of sins in order to become a child of God. And maybe we can assist you to do that this morning. Let's stand and sing.